morning, uh, everyone. Uh, Today, we'll be looking at the Beatitudes. That's Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 1 to 12, um, uh, which uh, Tola just read. Um, and last week, Alden gave an excellent overview of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that kicks off our summer series called Build on the Rock. All right. Uh, and and the, the clincher there, the big verse there was, you know, Jesus said, whoever hears my words and does them, it's like a man who builds on the rock, right? The winds came, the waves blew, but it, it stood firm. But if we didn't put his words into practice, it's like build on sand, it crashes, and, and so on, right? So build on the rock. That's, that's the series for the entire summer as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so in today's passage, I'm just going to rewind the tape a little bit in Matthew. Um, if you read the previous chapters, we read that Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. He'd been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, he fasted. John was arrested. And, and we, we read that Jesus um, began his official ministry, right? Um, and we saw him calling his first disciples, Matthew, John, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, Andrew, James, John. And he began to have large followings, right? He preached, he healed, he taught, he cast out demons, he healed diseases. And in chapter 4, verse 24, it says his fame spread throughout, right, that area, and great crowds followed him. And then in verse 1 of today's text, Matthew 5, we read that, and verse 1 says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, that is Jesus, he went up to the mountain, and then he sat down and had his disciples, you know, there with him. Um, uh, he opened his mouth and he taught. Right? And some scholars have compared this giving of the Sermon of the Mount to Moses giving the law from the mountain. Right? But the main point was that Jesus was about to give an important teaching. In a sense, the formal, you could think of it as a formal opening of the gospel. It began with blessed. Right? In Matthew 5.3. So what, what comes to mind um, when you hear the word blessed? Right? Or what, what things do people associate with the word blessed? Or if you, let's think about blessed for a second. Right? You know, what comes to mind? Is it a pay raise? Is it a new job that pays better than your former job? Is it a long-awaited vacation? Is it a new relationship that's exciting, maybe success, favor, promotion, new house, new money, winning a championship, right? Winning a race, I don't know who, Man City fans here, the one yesterday. Um, but, but we see this every day, right, on social media, right? You see a photo, an update, hashtag blessed, right? With some smiley face, some vacation, some nice, new thing to show off. And don't get me wrong, these are great things. These are good things, right? You know, um, God blesses us with, with, with some of these good things in life, right? But in today's passage, famously called the Beatitudes, Jesus expounds more on, on what it truly means to be blessed. And in a sense, he flips the script, right? He pronounces blessings in heart postures and in circumstances and situations that the world may not often value or that may be difficult. And so when I was planning for today's sermon, um, aside from, from the Beatitudes of today's passage, which we see the word blessed beginning every verse, the next eight verses, um, uh, I was thinking about other places in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, where we see the word blessed. And in Hebrew, that's Baruch, right? And, and, and when we use that word, it indicates some you know, grace, favor, some promise, typically from a higher authority, and it's usually God, right? Prophecy. And in a sense, you can think of the word blessed as a opposite of curse, right? Pronouncing some good, some, some prophecy, some word um, that, you know, even spans generations. And so the first one, Abrahamic covenant, right? God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will, you know, um, all the families through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's one example. 
Um, in another example, blessings for obedience, Deuteronomy 28, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country, blessed. So the, Moses pronounced all these blessings on the Israelites if they followed God's commandments. And the Psalms, you see, um, and we'll refer to the Psalms quite a bit as we go through the Beatitudes, but several um, uh, examples, um, the, even the first Psalm, the first verse in Psalms opened with, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of them God, and that's KJV. Or 34 verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, right? So we see this idea of blessing or blessedness being associated with, with following the Lord, seeking the Lord. One of the other ones, very um, common, Proverbs 20, 31, 8, 28, that's the virtuous woman, right? Her children shall rise and call her blessed. Her husband also, bless my wife, bless my mom right there. Um, you know, rise and bless your wives and your moms, right? right? So, so you're, you're blessing, you're pronouncing grace, favor from the Lord. Now, dozens of books, treatises, and, you know, have been published on the Beatitudes, right? And, and you can discuss or debate whether they're four or eight or nine or ten. I mean, you know, I mean, the Latin translation of this text, each of these verses began with the word beati, right? It means blessed. And later on, this passage was titled Beatitudo. It's a Latin term for a state of blessedness, and hence we get beatitude in English, right? Growing up in Sunday school, and probably today, we still use the word play beatitude, right? Um, essentially, these are attitudes for godly characters of the Christian. And I'll take the play a step further and say, well, let's not stop at being, but also move on to doing, right? So for some of these, I'll call them dual attitudes, right? Do them, not just, you know, be them, but do them. But of course, we keeping in mind that this is all because we are saved through Christ and in response to His grace, right? And so today, I want us to examine what Jesus is calling us to be as His followers. Right? Um, we're going to briefly survey the eight Beatitudes in today's passage. I think there's a table on the screen there. I number each of them one by one, and along with the character or quality or even fruit, because you can think of these as fruit. Um, there's actually a very cool correspondence between the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and many of the Beatitudes Jesus talks about here. And then there's a blessing or a promise or a reward associated with each of these characters or states or fruit, right? And, and if I could kind of pick a central thought or a central core message for today's passage, it would be this. As children of God, saved by His grace, we are called to show Christ, bear fruit, through our character and works, and through the ups and downs, because there will be challenges, we are favored, blessed by God for His glory, and that others may know Him, right? Because this is ultimately for the glory of God. Um, let me pray again uh, one more time. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Um, I pray that you'll speak um, your truth, Lord, um, that anything that is of me will not be said. I pray that your Holy Spirit will take control. Lord, I pray we'll leave here blessed today, will not remain the same. I pray that your word will transform us inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, poor in spirit, right? Verse three, Jesus, and that's the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first beatitude, right? And, and what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Right? You know, think about this in several different ways, but I think it means to, you know, to recognize that we are sinners before a holy God. In the Amplified Bible, when my wife and I were talking about this um, during the week, you know, blessed, the word blessed is expanded as spiritually, uh, spiritually prosperous or happy or to be admired, while poor in spirit is explained as devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant. Right? So there's this paradox or this contrast between, well, you have to somehow be spiritually 
poor before you can be spiritually prosperous. Right? But you can kind of boil it down to this. On our own, our righteousness does not cut it. Right? As the prophet Isaiah said in 64 verse 6, our righteousness are like filthy rags before God. And so thus, to receive salvation, that is the promise of eternal life, it means that we have to accept Jesus died for our sins. That's the gospel. So we come in poverty that we might take God up on his offer of the riches of eternal life. We cannot receive God's gift of the kingdom of salvation without this posture. And I mean, this, this example just came to mind. You know, you know, um, you know when I was talking to the other, um, uh, when we drive on the road, for example, or someone is asking for money and, you know, they, they're looking like they need something. They have a sign saying, help me, I'm this, I'm that, like this happened to me, right? And, and there's essentially a display of poverty, a display of need. Now, flip the script and imagine there was somebody who was dressed in all the fine clothes, dressed so well, you know, had a gold ring and had, you know, a nice iPhone and all that, and they were standing in the street asking for money. Would you feel like you wanted to give them anything? Probably not, right? Because they don't look like they need anything. There's no poverty there. The same way Jesus was telling the Pharisees that I have not come for those who think they're fine. Like, if you have no sin, then you don't need me, right? I've come that, you know, those who are needy can have life. There's a parable in Luke 18 that Jesus um, told that illustrates this well. That's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where Jesus warns against, and and that verse is on the screen, I think, trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. That's the first verse there. Like, you know, he warns against trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. That's, that's, I think, is the opposite of spiritual poverty. And in verse 11, it says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes every Sunday, right? right? So he's saying all the good things he does. And in contrast, the tax collector standing afar off, not even dare to come close to God and would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it was that man, that tax collector that was justified that day. That's spiritual poverty, right? It's a humility of spirit, a proper reckoning of who we are before God. And for those who have received Christ, a proper reckoning of who we once were, because we must never forget the price Christ paid for us. And he tells us, die to self daily, carry your cross daily, deny yourselves and follow me, right? Denying yourself in a sense, another, it's another um, outcome of, of, of spiritual poverty. And, and lastly, for this beatitude, I want to remind us of the, the letter to the Laodicean church um, in Revelation 3, 14 to 22, where Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. And for that particular church, Jesus was warning them. He says, verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, right? So this says the moment we think we're rich, the moment you think we've made it, we don't need God, that's when we need to be careful that we're not becoming like the Laodiceans, right? Neither hot nor cold when you know, God says he'll spit them out of his mouth. Right? So we, even as Christians, we are to be in a state of spiritual poverty, acknowledging our need for God. Next one, number two, blessed are those who mourn. That's verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. You know, and when was the last time you ever saw 
a hashtag blessed post on social media with sad faces or someone crying and hashtag blessed. No, no, no one ever does that, right? We associate, we do not typically associate mourning or sorrow with blessedness, do we? But Jesus pronounces blessing in the morning, right? And the blessing is that comfort awaits. Child of God, comfort awaits. I, I think of um, this um, verse, Psalm 30, verse 5b, says, weeping may endure for a night, for joy cometh in the morning. In the morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, but you could also say M-O-U-R-I-N-G, same, same idea. And that's the promise, comfort. You know, there's this song that I really love. You don't have to worry, and don't you be afraid. Joy comes in the morning, troubles they don't last away. For there's a friend named Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken, just lift your hands and say, Oh, I know that I can make it. Two more lines. I know that I can stand, no matter what may come my way. My life is in your hands. Such a beautiful picture, promise of God's comfort. The comfort that gets us through the hard times. So, I, I, just another verse, um, Paul writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, so that we may be able to comfort those with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So what do we see from this verse is, these verses? God is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our trials and our afflictions and our troubles. And they're going to come. Believe me, they will come. If you've not had them already, they will come. And here's the beauty in this, though. As we are comforted by God, we can also comfort others with the comfort He gives. So this is not just a blessing for us. It's a blessing we pass on to others. Right? Paul affirms that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, and that's not fun necessarily, right? But the promise also is that when we share abundantly in suffering, we share abundantly in Christ's comfort, and we get to comfort others going through afflictions as well, right? So next time we're going through something, we know that, yes, God is going to comfort you, but He also is blessing you so you can bless someone else with that comfort that He's given you. Right? And so, friends, anyone morning today, God, the God of all comfort is ready, able, and willing to comfort you. He's here right now through His Holy Spirit. Third, blessed are the meek. Right? And the meek, this one is a really fun one, you know, um, the meek shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? If you do a quick search online, you'll realize very quickly that there is a lot of debate surrounding what the best translation of the Greek word in the original text, prowse means. And some scholars say gentle and humility come close. That's a very common translation. And some others, um, one phrase I found that I thought was a really good one was strength under control. Strength under control. Right? Like, so that means to be meek is not necessarily a passive submission, but a willful, intentional act of surrender. Like Jesus willingly laid down his life. He was beaten, slapped, mocked, flogged, but he 
It's not like he didn't have the power. He could have called out a host of angels and just destroyed everyone with one breath, one word, but he was meek. So as Jesus was telling disciples this, they may have recalled the scripture from Psalm 37 because the psalmist did talk about this. Um, Psalm 37, verses 7 to 11. Um, it's also on the screen. It's a longer passage, but I'll read through it because there are a few key things here. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. Again, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. So from these verses, we gain this understanding that meekness encompasses more, right? It's being still before God, waiting patiently, not fretting, not worrying over evildoers and their prosperity. Oh, that guy just got a nice car. That person got a new job. I'm still here. God, why? Not getting angry, not getting vengeful. And the blessing, the promise in there is that those who do this shall inherit the land and delight in abundant peace. Now, what would that look like for you? Would that mean less anxiety? Would that mean less stress, not worrying about this or that? And actually, Jesus talks more about these in, 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 in the subsequent um, chapters, and we'll cover this over the rest of the summer, so stay tuned for that. Um, but in short, you can think of being meek as living like God is truly the one in charge of your life. Right? The universe is His, the things the world strives for, wealth, power, position, and so on. It's all God's to give. And so if we live like that, we know He gives us all we need. I don't have to worry. Before we move on, though, I want to briefly touch, touch on two men who were described as meek in Scripture. Anyone know who one of, one of those? Jesus, yes. Jesus is, yes, good. Always the answer to that. Jesus, yes. And, and also Moses was, Moses was also described as meek, yes. So I'm going to talk about those two men. Moses, Numbers 12, verse 3. Right. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people. I mean, I don't know. If, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's major, major, major. All people, right? No one else was as meek as Moses, who were on the face of the earth. That's a serious praise right there. And actually, the context of this verse, I, I don't know how many of you know, Moses had two siblings. One was Aaron, one was Miriam. Miriam was the worship leader. Aaron was the priest. And they were complaining that Moses married this woman, and they were saying all sorts of things, that God also speaks to us, not just Moses, and they were making all this stuff. And God was angry on Moses' behalf, punished them, and so on. But the, 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 there, there was some element of pride and envy on their part, right? But just to focus on Moses for a bit, this was a man, the great leader, the great man Moses, who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, who wrote, you know, major books in the Old Testament. This man, yet, who was described as the meekest of all on earth at the time. That's a great picture right there. The second one is Jesus, right? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus gives this famous invitation, or at least very remarkable invitation. It says, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I'm reading KJV, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. And if you read your ESV, it renders the word as gentle and lowly, but the word is exactly the same word, the prowse Greek word used in the other text, in our today's text. So Jesus is, is essentially saying, you know, take my yoke. And for those who don't know, a yoke is a wooden beam or piece of wood that typically pairs two animals. You can use it on a single animal as well. Um, and it, they, they draw a plow through the soil to till it or to carry some other load, right? And so the idea of being yoked evokes strength also under control, right? Because these animals, the oxen or the horses, they're strong, right? And, and they channel that energy through this device so they can, you know, accomplish this task, right? And Jesus is saying, come to me, take my yoke, don't try to go your own way, don't take on burdens that ultimately are too heavy to bear, right? My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And when we are paired with Jesus in his yoke, right, he does the heavy lifting, right? I was looking up the picture, sometimes a yoke, uh, maybe a stronger animal, the weaker one, the stronger animal obviously takes more of the load and you're just kind of going along, right? And we get to go along for the right if we submit to his will and his way, right? So that's the blessing, inheriting the earth. It's a massive promise, and I think there are even eternal ramifications to that, but even on earth here and now, right, there's a sense of less stress, living like God is in charge, right? And a future promise of that. So my encouragement to us is stay humble, stay humble, stay meek. Right. Next one, number four, hunger and thirst after righteousness. I like after instead of for, in the case of it's after, so it says hatar, if you want to keep a, a nice uh, acronym in your head. Uh, I like using acronyms when I read scripture and just write things down like acronyms. So, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, or filled, uh, depending on what you're reading. And, and, and I would ask, what does it mean to hunger and thirst after something? Again, I think, you know, the, the, the feeling of hunger is not foreign to many of us. At least, when was the last time you felt famished or starving, right, as we often say, even though I don't think many in this room may have probably faced real starvation, right? Um, but we've probably all gone through periods where whether I'm super busy, working all day, or no money really, and we've, some of us have been there, lack of funds, stress, illness, whatever, you don't eat for a while, right? You're starving, and then you see the first meal in whatever hours or a day or whatever, you're ravenous, you clear everything in sight, I eat nonstop, just, you know, fast until I'm full. But then, after that meal, are you full forever, right? No, right? I mean, in a few hours, I'm starving again, like in a few, yeah, tomorrow I need food, next week the same scenario repeats itself over and over. So, we are always in need of food, constantly. Const it's a constant thing. That's the way we're wired. And so the question is, do we hunger in the same way after righteousness? Do we hunger in the same way after God? Right, yeah, righteousness, you can think of that as right standing with God, being in a state of communion with God and a good relationship. Are we hungry in the same way the way we hunger after food? What about thirst? I mean, thirst is even more, I mean, you know, they say you can survive without food for 30 days, but water is just tough. I mean, I think after three or so, I don't know what the stats are. I didn't look that up. Right? But there are times of the year, especially in the beginning of summer, when I go on a run, I'm not well hydrated, so, you know, I, I, you know maybe I'm planning to do eight miles and two miles, and I'm just like, I'm thirsty, I don't have water, and it just gets worse, right? My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I actually experienced this like a month ago. And on a really bad day, which has happened, I'll just cut the run short, I'll bail, I'll turn back home. But the last time this happened, I, I'm going to stick this out, I'm going to tough it out, and I slowed down long enough to, to run to the end, and I did the eight miles, but I was super parched, you know. 
exhausted. I gulped down a liter and a half of water in literally seconds. I was so thirsty, right? Because I'd been longing for water all through the entire run, right? So, I mean, you get the picture, right? Hungering and thirsting after food and drink, right? And how much more righteousness, right? How much more right standing with God? And I was thinking of this song um, last night. Um, it's in the Psalms. I love these um, Beatitudes expressing the Psalms and sings Psalm 42, verse 1 to 10. By the way, I don't know how many of us realize these Psalms are actually songs, right? They're not just text. They were songs. And we have a song. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Amen. Thanks for singing. Yeah. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 42. Right. And also in, in Romans 14, 17, it kind of takes that idea and kind of turns it around and says, the kingdom of God is not about meat and drink, but about righteousness, peace, and joining the Holy Ghost. This was in context when Paul was talking about eating meat and not offending other believers. But again, the idea that, yes, food, drink, important for the body, but more so righteousness, righteousness. I don't know, for those of you who are like Apple fans, Steve Jobs used to say, stay hungry, stay foolish. I, I, but I will say, stay humble, stay hungry, right? Stay thirsty for Jesus, right? Um, and the promise is there. You will be filled. You will be satisfied because no matter how big a meal we eat, we'll be hungry again in a few hours. No matter how much success, and you can take that analogy and kind of connect it, anything in this world, success, wealth, whatever, it's never enough. The moment we get something, we always want the next thing. We always want more. We, it's never good enough, right? There's a never-ending quest for more. But the blessing for those that hunger and thirst after righteousness is that they will be satisfied. They will be filled. Two examples in John. Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks water, that's John 4, 13 to 14, if it's on the screen there, will be thirsty again, right? So we always thirst for water, but whoever drinks of the water, the living water, will never thirst again. It's going to be spring well enough to eternal life. Eternal life. That's the end result. In John 6, 35, even more stark, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus says, I am the ultimate person that will give you satisfaction. That's the, that's the price. That's the that's the, that's the blessing, Jesus himself. All right, let's move on. Merciful, number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our God is a merciful God. Um, ex- ex- Exodus 34, eight, uh, 6, when he gave the law to Moses, he said, you know, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, still to anger, bound in steadfast love and faithfulness. And, you know, God has always been describing himself in terms of mercy. That's a core element of his character. And how much more as the children of God do we reflect that mercy? And what does it mean to be merciful? And there's many ways of kind of splitting that, uh, you know, a lot of aspects to it, but I'll just highlight a couple here. I think of showing compassion, meeting needs. And when it comes to meeting needs, I mean, I fall short of this all the time, by the way. I just, do we pay lip service or do we pour resources, time, talent, and treasure to the best of our ability? Right. And I'll just give the verse, James 2.15, it says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, this is probably one of the most, I love this verse, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, 
be warm, be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So there's an aspect of showing mercy that involves responding to physical needs around. And we even see Jesus doing that. Like, you know, he not only like healed diseases and healed the sick and saved people and forgave their sins, he fed them bread and fish. He fed them, I mean, bread and fish, the best meal that Jesus ever ate. Like always in the Bible, bread and fish, bread and fish, turned water into wine, right? So meeting needs, addressing physical poverty and misery, need around us, lack. Another aspect of mercy, I think, a big one, is forgiveness, right? When someone wrongs us or sins against us, how do we show mercy? I mean, do we show mercy, number one, and two, how do we show it? Right? One of the best examples or illustrations of this is the parable of the unforgiven servant. I'll quickly do a quick run-through of that. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. We won't read it. I'll just give a summary. In the backdrop of this parable, Peter asked Jesus, how often do I forgive a brother who sins against me? Jesus says, well, multiple times, 70 times 7. But in response, it gives a parable. It likens the kingdom of God to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. One servant owed 10,000 talents. And I, you know, you can look this up, 10,000 talents. One talent is 20 years worth of daily wages. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 years worth of daily wages. This man and his family and his property were all going to be sold, and they'll be sold into slavery to pay the debt, and he begged for mercy, and it was forgiven. But yet the same man went to some other guy who was owing him just 1,000 denarii. Now, 1,000, one denarius is one day's worth of wages, okay? So 1,000 denarii is 1,000 days' worth of wages. This person owes him 1,000, but this guy was forgiven 200,000 years. I mean, if you want to do the math, I didn't do the math earlier, but I don't know. Um, I mean... <laughs> 70 million days worth of wages versus 1,000 days. I mean, that's kind of weird. ridiculous, right? And this man wanted to put this other guy in prison even though he begged for mercy, right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but this is, this is what we do. This is what we do. We hang on to stuff. I mean, if we didn't, if we're not prone to that parable, would not be in the Bible, right? It's there for instruction. Like, this is who we are, unfortunately, before Christ or the flesh. Let's put it that way. And Jesus is saying, forgive others. So yeah, Father will forgive you, right? Let's re- reflect on this, right? So showing compassion, um, forgiven, showing mercy. And of course, I should note that this is not saying we earn, like we don't earn mercy by being merciful. I mean, it, we're blessed in that we receive mercy, right? We receive mercy from God. And Jesus is saying, be like me. I'm merciful. Your Father is merciful. That's Luke 6.36, right? You receive mercy from God, and that's the blessing in there, but not just that. There's forgiveness. There's also more. Maybe some deliverance, some miraculous thing from some situation. There's, there's so much mercy that God shows us on a daily basis we don't even see. His mercies are new every morning. That's what the Bible says, right? Great is your faithfulness. And there are also temporal mercies. Right? How many of us in this room have fallen foul of the law or, or some rules somewhere? Right? Maybe you got a parking ticket or a speeding ticket and you appealed, and it was successful, and you, that's, that's mercy, right? Or you turn your homework late, and your professor still graded it, that's mercy. I, I have mercy on my sentence. <laughs> um, right? Or, or you went to the store, you forgot your store card, your big white card, and, you know, and, and the, the cashier just mercifully swipes their store card for you, and you get like a $3 discount, my wife was telling me the other day, that's what happened. That's mercy, right? 
That's the blessing when we are merciful. The more we show mercy, the more we get mercy. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. And the more we do that, we are becoming like Jesus. We are showing Jesus to a world that is in desperate need of him. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Right? Jesus talks about loving your enemies, being kind to the ungrateful and the evil, and God himself will help us. We'll talk more about this in future sermons, so stay tuned on that. All right, three more to go. The pure in heart, number six. Verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right. What do you think of when you hear the word pure? Right. Right. Does that word even often cross your mind? Right. I mean, for many of the church, this word typically is associated with sexual purity or the purity culture, and, and that's good. Right? But there's, there's other types of purity, right? I mean, just to bring down to earth a little bit where I grew up, pure water was a thin to be sold. Because not every source of drinking water could be trusted, right? So pure water was a thin. And another item that we think that maybe you, maybe you could be familiar with here is um, that is often marketed as pure is honey, right? So sellers or purveyors want customers to know the product has no additives, right? But even these days, pure honey is not even a thin anymore. It's, it's raw. It's unfiltered. That's where it's at. But, but pure honey still was a thin back then. You know, you wanted to make sure it wasn't caught with some other additives or other stuff, right? But you get the idea. For expensive or critical items like water or rare items, right? Water, honey, medicine, spices. I mean, I don't know how many of you know, like a lot of cinnamon you buy is not the real stuff. Half of it is not cinnamon, but that's a different story. Um, vanilla essence is full of stuff that is not actually the essence, just fake stuff. I mean, it goes on and on, right? So people cut, you know, they cut it with something else. It's adulterated, it's contaminated. So in a sense, it's not 100% of its intended, co intended composition, right? Think of pure as being 100%. Pure in heart, 100% in heart after God. I'm going to give an example from the Psalms. Again, David, the, the king, the prophet, the psalmist, spoke of the pure in heart. And there's a song to this. I'm not going to, I mean, I will, well, Psalm 24, verse 3 to 5. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Yeah. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Right? Does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So we see from this passage, right, to stand before God, to send your holy heal, that means to see God, right? We must be pure in heart. And what does it mean, right? You see these qualities listed here. You don't lift up your soul to what is false. You don't swear deceitfully, right? But more importantly, the pure in heart seek God. We seek his face, right? When we are pure in heart, we are saved by his grace. We've received salvation, and our righteousness is of God. That's the blessing, the righteousness of God. And I think this ties well with the hunger and thirst and after righteousness as well. Essentially, when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we are seeking the Lord. We are waiting on Him. And that's where we get the purity of heart from. And in fact, you can think of this pure in heart as 100% single-minded pursuit of Christ. Right? James talks about not being double-minded, right? So I think of integrity, pure motives, right motives. Ultimately, just holy gods, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy gods and which is also holiness, H-O-L-Y, right? And that holiness comes through the saving knowledge of Christ, the power of Jesus. 
And to, to link this with the next beatitude of the peacemakers, I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 12, 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. I mean, so the, if their emphasis in those verses, they are mine, they're not from the text. Strive for holiness, peace and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, right? So we can't see God without holiness, and that holiness comes through knowing Christ. But I just like that, strive for peace, strive for peace. And, and the, the second to the last beatitude, number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I, uh, when I was in sophomore year, we went on a service trip uh, to Camden to volunteer at some school, and we had this t-shirt called Peacemakers, and we had the Matthew 5 um, verse um, behind us there in such a cool shirt that I wore for several years, right? But the idea is, what, is, what does it mean to be, to be a peacemaker, right? We're going to talk, talk about that soon, right? But the blessing there is, they shall be called the sons of the children of God, right? One of my favorite songs, one last song here, when I think of peace, I don't know, there's a, there's a the gospel singer called Lionel Peterson, he passed away last year, I just learned, um, he has a song. I will worship the Lord, for He is worthy. I will lay down my sword, the Prince of Peace is His name. King of the flood, the Lord is mighty. The Lord can quench the evil flame. And just the chorus, two more lines. Peace, when trouble blows, Jehovah sees, Jehovah knows. He's my peace, when sorrow nears, Jehovah sees, Jehovah hears. Yeah. So, Common troubled waters, right? peacemaking. And Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. There was a storm, the panicked, Master, Master, we're dying, we're drowning. And Jesus woke up. They woke him up, actually. And he said, Peace be still. That's Mark 4 39. He rebuked the wind and the waves and said to say, Peace be still. And there was a great calm. It's a great calm. So that's peace in a storm right? Peace is also a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That gentleness, humility, I forgot to actually mention, is meekness, right? Self-control. So, I think of that as a, you know, it's a defensive weapon. The Bible also says in another verse, the peace of God passes on understanding will guard our hearts and minds. That's in Philippians. That comes through prayer. But then the question is, how do we bring peace into the situations around us, into our domains. What does it mean to make peace, actually? I think, again, there's a temporal, there's a horizontal, and there's a vertical aspect to this. But talk about horizontal relationships, right? Are we people that raise the temperature in a room, or are we people that seek to reduce it? Do we stoke the flames of discord or chaos, or do we quell them? Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Are our answers gentle? Right. We just went through Romans, the second half of Romans and, and the spring, and Romans 12.8 tells us, As much as it lies within that power, be at peace, live at peace with all. Right? So children of God, we are to make peace wherever we go, wherever we are. We bring understanding, we calm tensions between opposing parties. We seek unity where it's possible, but... That's how we show Jesus to a dying world. But there's something even greater. Jesus, as we, in that song, is the Prince of Peace, right? It's in the Bible. 
and he himself, himself, he is our peace, right? And that comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, uh, three, actually from 13 through 17. The, the context of that passage is Paul is talking about divisions between Gentiles and, and Jews and all that, but the, the point is still the same. He's saying in verse 14, you know, the idea of peace is reconciliation. He himself is our peace. He has made us one broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16 says, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near, right? Peacemaking ultimately is reconciliation with God. And the ultimate peace is through Jesus when we become children of God. And we get to participate in that ministry of reconciliation. We get to be peacemakers in our own way in the spheres of influence he's placed us in. Ultimately to bring glory to God and hopefully draw others to Christ as well. All right, wrapping up here, one more um, beatitude, the last one, the persecuted. Verse 10 reads, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To persecute someone or a group of people, to mistreat, abuse, harm, harass, to be hostile to someone or a group of people because of what they believe, what they profess, or who they are, what they look like, or, you know, whatever. And they all, these are terrible things, right? But in this verse, also important to note is the for righteousness' sake, right? That's the key qualifier here. Jesus is referring to suffering for the cause of Christ, right? There are other verses too that deal with oppression in the Bible, um, and, you know. But in this case, you're talking about persecution for the sake of Christ. And for the Christian, it comes in many ways, shapes, and forms, right? Now, it's not a question of if but rather of when, right? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will, in godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. It's not may be persecuted, not might be, right? Or sometimes will be persecuted. It's a, it's a certainty. Probability is one, right? couldn't be more plain, right? So, brothers and sisters, if we do follow Christ with our all, we will face persecution at some point or another. For some, as we've seen amply in history, it could be as severe as to the point of death. I mean, Stephen was the first martyr who was stoned, right? But maybe for you in your context, it could mean maybe a denial of a promotion at a job. It could be a hostile, a hostile neighbor, right? They keep doing stuff to make you mad. Or maybe at school, your friends, right? Some of them won't talk to you anymore the moment they learn you go to church or you learn about your faith. Or you get some funny looks from, from people because of they know you on Sunday morning. Oh, is that, that's him, you know, that's her. Hmm. Well, whichever which way it comes, right? Be ready for it. But Jesus has pronounced a blessing. There is a reward in this, right? And if you notice, it's exactly the same blessing as the first beatitude, the kingdom of heaven, right? For there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? So, saying yes to Jesus, we have to be poor in spirit to accept Christ. Yes to eternal life, but it also means, yeah, we get to spend eternity with Christ, but it also means we get to share in his suffering. And so far, Jesus has been speaking in the third person, but let's move on to verse 11 and 12. He switches to the second person here. And he's addressing the disciples directly and saying, blessed are you, right? Because it sounds like this is going to happen to you. 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So here we see other forms of persecution, right? To revile is to criticize abusively or angrily or insultingly, right? We also see false accusation, slander, again, all on the account of Christ. And the encouragement in verse 12, that's the last verse of our text today, rejoice, rejoice, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So great, great reward awaits us, friends. Um, and just to, 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 to put some more light into this, in James 5.12, it says actually really well too, the same beatitude almost. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we rejoice in the face of persecution. We are glad. And I know it's easier said than done. It's not easy. It can be painful. But God gives us grace. And one other example, one final example here in Acts 5, in the early church, the Holy Spirit had been released. You know, we did Pentecost Sunday two weeks ago. And the apostles were preaching, they were teaching, they had the boldness of the Holy Spirit. And soon enough, they were targeted, right, by the ruling council, right? Verses 40 to 41, the Sanhedrin brought them in. They called them in, they beat them. I mean, this wasn't fun. And they charged them, don't preach about this Jesus anymore, and they let them go. And these guys left the presence of the council, but they were rejoicing, that's verse 41, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I had to ask myself, do I ever feel like, do I ever rejoice when I feel like ashamed or dishonored or disgraced for Christ? I don't think rejoicing is the first thing that comes to me, honestly. But rejoice and be glad, and that's what they did, right? Right? And in our case, I don't think we even suffer like the tiniest amount of shame compared to what these um, men and women who went before us went through. But that's the encouragement, and there's a reward. And last verse to close this out, and I think this just really ties it in well, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. Um, I'm just going to read that as the last passage, and we'll close and we'll pray. Sorry. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler, right? So he's saying, you know, let not suffer for the wrong causes, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, right? So it's for the glory of God, for the glory of God, and eternal life awaits. And... Um, so what area of your life has God spoken to this morning? Um, and as, as we just wrap up now, um, can the keyboardist or the, yeah, can I come in and play? Um, where is the Spirit nudging you to make a change in your life? Now, I want to just encourage you. God doesn't want you to live here the same way you walked in, right? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ has come to give us life and life more abundantly. And so for those who don't know Christ, I will invite you to receive him today. Accept his sacrifice for you. Acknowledge your sin. He's willing and able and ready to save you. Now, for those of us who always thought we figured it out, maybe you thought, I don't need God, I'll invite you to acknowledge your spiritual poverty today. Even for those who know Christ, there's no end to knowing Him. Right? Is anyone mourning today? God wants to comfort you. More than that, He wants to give you eternal comfort and 
as you go through this, whatever it is, just know that He will use it to comfort others as well. And He's comforting you right now. I believe that. Has there been any pride in your life? Jesus is saying, take my yoke. My burden is light, and there you will find rest for your souls. Surrender it all to Him right now. Is your turmoil at your place of work? People being laid off or fired? You feeling your next? Is there, is there turmoil in your neighborhood, in your relationships? The Prince of Peace is here. And He's saying, peace be still. He's blessing you right now to bring peace, to make peace horizontally and vertically. Is there anyone you need to show mercy to specifically in your life? Or it's just an area you want to grow in, right? God is merciful. He will help you. He will help us. And finally, is anyone here maligned for their faith? Are you hurting because you've been unfairly treated because of Christ? Or are you doubting now because of what you've gone through? I believe His glory is being revealed in you right now. Now, we'll pray that you feel encouraged today as well. And just know that the crown of life awaits. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Um, I believe you're here right now working in our midst, Lord. I ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us. Free in us, O oh God, divine gardener. Change us, transform us, O oh God. Renew us, O oh God. That will bear fruit that will last, Lord, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name.